So today we're going to be learning um, a Hasidic discourse, a mimer, a uh, very unique and special mimer. It's uh, typically known as Basi Lagani 5710, or in the Hebrew words, Tafshin Yud. 5710 is 1950. So just a little uh, history. Huh? It's a long time ago, huh? 1950 is a long time ago. That's when I was born. What was that? That's when I was born. Oh, that year. Very nice. Yeah. So you're a Chesedish Jew. You're a Chesedish Jew. Uh, what months were there? Shabbat. Shabbat. When were you born? October. <laughs> October. It's later. That's later. A little later. That's fine. No big deal. What were you asking? No. So Basilegani is another way of saying Mimer or Basilegani was this particular Mimer? This particular Mimer is titled Basilegani. Okay? So... Let me give a little bit of a, of a background to what this mimer is about, and then we'll kind of get into um, the, actual, the actual mimer. So, a mimer is a Hasidic discourse, which means, uh, one of the job descriptions of a Chabad Rebbe is to teach Hasidus. What does it mean to teach Hasidus? To deliver original Hasidic discourses. Um, and... Uh, so th- this is what uh, the Rebbes would do, starting from the Alter Rebbe, from the first Chabad Rebbe. Uh, while he was authoring the Tanya, the Tanya was actually gathered together from different Hasidic discourses that he delivered to the Chassidim. Um, so the, how do you say, when you, when you talk about Hasidic philosophy, learning Hasidus, by definition it means learning some type of discourse. These discourses were either said in public and then transcribed by those that heard it, or they were transcribed by the Rebbe himself. It all depended on the generation, depends on the discourse, depends on the timing, all, all different things. Um, some, some discourses were only written by the Rebbe and were not delivered orally. Um, but essentially, the, the, the process of a Hasidic discourse was that the Rebbe would say it, and then it would come out in writing or published, etc. Um Typically, throughout all the generations of Chabad, starting from the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, so the Rebbe would deliver the discourse. The Alter Rebbe did not write any of his discourses. They were all transcribed by those that heard it. Starting from his son, Rabbi Dov Ber, the Mittler Rebbe, so he started to write his discourses as they were given out in writing. But in those days, there was no such thing as photocopies or print shops or things like that. To publish a book was a very big deal. So these discourses would go around in handwritten manuscripts. That's essentially how Hasidic discourses um, made their way around all the Hasidim. Uh, there were some printed books of Hasidic discourses, but very few. Um, all of that changed, you know, in the 50s, the 60s, especially in the 80s. The Rebbe went and, and published everything, so now they're all available in books. But in those days, they weren't really available. The sixth Rebbe, uh, so he became Rebbe in 1920. His father passed away the 2nd of Anissa in 1920. And so the 6th Rebbe became the, ne- the, the next Rebbe, and he started to deliver discourses. He would say the discourses, and he would also write them. So typically the Rebbe would say a discourse on a Shabbos, or a holiday, or a special Hasidic day, whatever it might be. And then afterwards it would come out in writing, and the Hasidim would, you know, copy it for themselves. Um, this continued essentially until 1944, 1945, and at that point the previous Rebbe uh, suffered from a terrible uh, health issue that caused his speech uh, 
to be very, very challenged. And uh, very few people were able to understand the previous Rebbe, even when they would come into a private audience, one of the secretaries would come together with them in order to be able to translate to the people what the Rebbe was saying. So the Rebbe stopped saying Hasidic discourses. However, at that point, uh, a new custom started, and that was that uh, periodically, uh, the previous Rebbe would take a discourse that he had delivered in a previous time, that had not been published, but it was around in you know manuscripts, and they would republish it in honor of a specific day. They would republish it, and he would also give it a new heading, a new beginning, etc. So it was it was very unique for that day. Um, in the Rebbe, who took over his father-in-law afterwards, he was the one that was in charge of the publications. All the Chabad publications went through him, so he was the one that would gather the material, he would prepare it for printing, etc. Um, Shvat of 1950, uh, the previous Rebbe prepared um, a, a discourse that he had delivered in 1923, I believe. It was 1923 that he had delivered. It was actually a, it was four discourses that were part of one long, uh, continuous theme. So it was really one long discourse that was split up into four. And he took this uh, long discourse, which actually was only available in a handwritten manuscript that one of the Hasidim in Crown Heights had. Even the previous rabbi did not have a copy of that, of that, um, of that discourse. Uh, there was a lot going on in Russia and the, and the Holocaust and all of this. So, um, fascinatingly enough, the, you know, the rabbi tracked down this discourse in someone's handwritten notebook, and based on that notebook, that's how they 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 uh, how you say brought this uh, discourse together. And it was published, uh, so it was meant to be published in a series of four, four official dates. The first date was the 10th of Shvat, which was the yard site of the previous Rebbe's grandmother. She was the wife of the Rebbe Maharash, her name was Rebbe Tzernifka. Um, so in order to mark that date, he was giving out the first section of these, uh, uh, this long discourse has 20 chapters, it was split up into four, five chapters in each. The first five chapters were published in honor of the 10th of Shvat. The second five chapters were published in honor of the 13th of Shvat, which was the yard site of his mother, Rebetzin Shtar Nassara. She passed away in 1942 in New York. She's buried in New York right across from the oil. And um, the third section, the plan was to publish it for Purim. And the fourth section, to publish it for the second of Nisan, which was his father's yard site, the Rebbe Rashab, who had passed away in 1920. So this was the plan. The first two were published in the same uh, booklet because the 10th of Shvat and 13th of Shvat are pretty much back-to-back. That year in 1950, the 10th of Shvat was Shabbos. So this discourse was being published in honor of Shabbos. Um, Friday afternoon, the, the booklets came from the publishing house. The Rebbe walked into his father-in-law's room, to the previous Rebbe's room, and uh, he saw the previous Rebbe was already in his Shabbos clothing and he was preparing for Mincha. In fact, he writes exactly, you know, on Mincha, <clears throat> on Friday, we preface that Mincha with uh, two large paragraphs. One is chapter, chapter 104, one right? No, first is Hodu, you know, chapter 107, uh, which is basically the chapter in Tehillim which describes the four types of people that have to give thanks for miracles that happen to them. So we say that every Friday afternoon, uh, essentially basically thanking God for surviving the week. And then we go on and we say a long paragraph, which, which is a Kabbalistic uh, composition called Pasach Yo 
Elijah opened up his mouth and he started to teach the secrets of the Torah. And many, many of the of the ideas that are discussed in Hasidus actually come from this Kabbalistic paragraph. So we all say it, you know. So the so Rebbe said when I walked in, I saw that my father-in-law had finished chapter one hundred seven in Tehillim, and was about to start Pasach Eliyahu. So you know exactly where he was. He put the notebook, the the booklet with the with the Hasidic discourse on the table. The previous Rebbe nodded, and the Rebbe walked out. Shabbos morning, the previous Rebbe passed away. It was pretty sudden. It was a, you know, <clears throat> he passed away. So, the Rebbe, um, right away, immediately pointed to this discourse and said, the fact that this discourse was published for that day, that it turns out that was the day that the Rebbe passed away, so this must be his last will and testament to our generation. Not only is it his last will and testament to his chassidim, but it's actually the charter of the next generation. In other words, this is like the official guide of what the next generation, what the theme of the, uh, what the focus of the next generation of Hasidim should be focused on. So that, that's why this uh, mimer is, very, is um, very central to Hasidic life in general. Uh, throughout that entire year, the Hasidim begged the Rebbe to you know, officially accept the mantle of leadership, and he refused. A year later, on the first yard side, there was a Fabrengen, and that's when the Rebbe officially accepted the mantle of Hasidus. And how did he do so? What's the official, by saying a mimer? By saying a mimer, that, that's what it means to accept the mantle of leadership. Oh, so what the Rebbe did was, he took that mimer, and he based his own Hasidic discourse, his own original Hasidic discourse, on the themes of that mimer. <clears throat> so that's Basi Lagani of 1951, which actually I, I think I taught several years ago. It's already online, etc. So I, I didn't want to go over it again, although that's that's actually very central to um, to our generation because this is the first mimer that the Rebbe said. This is the mimer of you know accepting the leadership. It's like his inaugural address, um, and there's a, a tremendous amount of of uh, important depth in that mimer. Um, but interestingly. From that year on, every year on the yard site of the previous Rebbe, so the Rebbe would say would have a Febrengen, and the Rebbe would say a Mimer, a Hasidic discourse, and every single year, the discourse would begin with the words Basi Lagani, which we'll talk about in a moment, and the theme of that year would correspond to another chapter in the long discourse. So there's 20 chapters in this long discourse. Every year, the Rebbe based his Mimer on the next chapter. So in 1952 it was on chapter 2, 1953 it was on chapter 3, then chapter 4, etc. Once they got to chapter 20 in 1970, guess what happened the next year? He started again from the beginning. It was just once a year. That... Once a year that he would focus on one of the chapters. On the yards of the previous chapter, exactly. So let me ask you something. Like we were watching the video last night, we talked about you know, learning and teaching. So the Baal Shem told People would sneak away to go study with him in the forest. Like I read in that book. Those weren't miners? Um, the Baal Shem Tov also taught, so, no, no, no. The Baal Shem Tov, his entire life was not sneaking and hiding away in the forest. No, when he was 36, him, when he was 36, he revealed himself. He became an official leader and teacher, and people came to him. He was very public and open. So it wasn't it wasn't in hiding at all, and he would also he would also deliver a mimer. Yes, he, he would teach, but it was in a different style. 
was much shorter. It was for a select group of people. It wasn't. It was. It was geared towards um, the Baal Shem Tov. When he would teach Torah, he had two ways of teaching. Either he would teach the scholars or he would teach the masses. When he taught the scholars, masses weren't even able to hear what was going. On. They wouldn't. Even, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't even catch a few words. Um, then when he teach the masses, it was more in a story style geared towards them. Uh, even though when he taught the masses, there were tremendous deep secrets embedded in, in the in the stories that he was teaching. Um, and then his successor, the Magid, also he you know he essentially would, his teachings were focused on on the scholars. Starting from the Alter Rebbe, when he gave a Hasidic discourse, there was something there for everyone. Um, so the the style or the model of delivering a Hasidic discourse essentially started, you know, it, it started mainly by the Alter Rebbe. It's more of a Chabad style type of way of, of teaching and communicating, etc. <clears throat> All right, so uh, what does Basi Lagani mean? I came to my garden. So typically, very good, gone. I, I, well, don't you don't have to say that you're not. Uh, no, but yeah. I, I went with your parents to their home. Mm-hmm. I don't remember when, what time of the year it was. But we walked in, and then on the TV, he was giving him back. He was talking about it. So we stood there. I stood there with Tom. And you watched it. Very good. Yep. So so here's how a Hasidic discourse, the makeup of a Hasidic discourse is. It starts off, um, the opening words are typically a verse from all over Tanakh. It could be from the Torah. It could be from, the, it could be from anywhere in the Tanakh. Or sometimes it would start off with like a quote from a Mishnah. Rarely does it start off like, you know, let's understand this topic. It, it, does, it happens sometimes, but very, very rarely. So typically a Hasidic discourse starts off with a verse from somewhere in Tanakh. This Hasidic discourse, um, the previous Rebbe chose a verse from Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs. That's the love song between God and the Jewish people. And he starts off with a verse which uh, reads in Hebrew, Basi Lagani Achoisi Kala. Bati Lagani Achoti Kala. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. So let's first get who is speaking. I is referring to God. And the bride, who's God's bride? The Jewish people. Very good. When were we called his bride? Yeah, exactly. Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, right? Mount Sinai, the, the, the Talmud tells us that God lifted up Mount Sinai above us like a chuppah. <clears throat> That's right. We went all the way down to the desert. It was, it was great. It was great stuff. No water for the, for the eye to see. There's probably some golf courses, no? In fact, in fact, um, before the giving of the Torah, Mount Sinai beforehand was a desolate mountain. Short. But then it was very short, right? But in preparation for that, it uh, became green and flowers and trees, kind of like a golf course. You know. <laughs> anyway, I don't know how many holes there were there, but um, anyway, so um, this statement in Shir Hashirim, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride, this is referring to the time period of the giving of the Torah. That was the marriage between God and the Jewish people. Um, so, Song of Songs, the Medrash explains, is not to be taken at face value. If you read through it, it sounds like some type of erotic song between you know, a, a groom and a bride. It is a metaphor describing the ongoing relationship between God and His bride, the Jewish people. The above verse, for example, refers to the time of the construction of the sanctuary, 
when the Shekhinah came into his garden. For it was then that the Divine Presence, distant for a time, was again revealed in this world. So we had just said that it was the evening of the Torah. It was a time period which started at Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. That's when we were the bride. But then, there was, if you recall, after the giving of the Torah, there was 40 days later, the Jewish people kind of messed up, right? The, the golden calf. Uh, and then, in order to fix up uh, that break in the relationship, there was a process which culminated with the construction of the tabernacle, the Mishkan, in the desert. So when that Mishkan, when the tabernacle was inaugurated, and God's Shechina, His presence, filled and was present in the tabernacle, so that's when uh, th- that's what this verse is referring to when God says, I have come to my garden. Now, um, so we know who I is, God. We know who the bride is, and we know when we're discussing this. But what is the garden? The Hebrew word that means to my garden is now discussed. Medrash Rabbah on the above verse observes <coughs> that the word used is not ligan, which would mean to the garden, but legani, which means to my garden. And when we say my garden, this implies lignuni, which means my bridal chamber. Or as the commentaries on the Medrash explain, this possessive form implies a private place, such as the chamber in which the spiritual union of groom and bride is consummated. So we're not just talking about any old garden. We're not just talking about my garden, but it's my private place in the garden. When God says, I have come to my garden, He says, I'm coming to my intimate space. But what is that place? Uh, The Divine Presence is thus saying, I have come into my bridal chamber, into the place in which my essence was originally revealed. What is that place? Mount Sinai with a burning bush? This world. The world... This world is the place where God was originally. What does that mean he was there originally? The Medrash continues. In the beginning, we're talking about the beginning of creation, Bereshit, in Genesis. In the beginning, the essence of the Shekhinah was apparent in this lowly world. When Adam was created, Adam and Eve, and they were in the Garden of Eden, they were living in a world which just was oozing godliness. It was shining. It was brilliant. It was all over the place. God was here. God was revealed here just like a person is so comfortable and um, in their own place as in their own bridal chamber, right? In their own private space. <clears throat> so what happened? Why did he leave? However, in the wake of the cosmic sin of the tree of knowledge, the Shekhinah departed from the earth and rose into the heavens. How many heavens are there? Seven Seven heavens, right? Later, on account of the sin of Cain, sorry, and then of Enosh, the Shekhinah withdrew even further from this world. What was the sin of Cain? Killed his brother, right? Not only that, he kind of uh, wanted to deflect blame. Am I my brother's keeper, right? It was a pretty bad situation. Uh, So, Adam, with the tree of knowledge, that sin, pushed God away from this world into the heavens. And then Cain, with his sin, he pushed God further up into a higher heaven. 
And then Enosh, what was the, 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 the sin of Enosh? In fact, Maimonides describes that the whole concept of idolatry, of bowing down to bricks and stones and things like that, things like that originated from the generation of Enosh. They made a, uh, they made a, a serious error in their calculation of how God works and how we're supposed to serve God. Uh, so that was the sin of Enosh. Then Enosh and then Enoch or something? Uh, no, who it's a different person. Enoch is Chanoch. Who, okay, when Hashem took uh, one of them... That's Chanoch. Mm-hmm. Uh, which in English oh. we say Enoch. Mm-hmm. Enoch, or I, don't, I don't know how you say it, but that's Chanoch. Here we're talking about Enosh. Okay. Um, so Enosh was one of the, how you say, one of the patriarchs, one of the founding fathers of idolatry. It was part of the part of the problem. Who was Enosh? Where is he in the thing? Here, let's take out a book come, of Genesis. How did he come to the world? How did he come to the world? He was born to a mother and father. <laughs> yeah, let's take out the book. Huh? He had a mom. He had a mom. Uh, here, let's see. One second. So you have Adam, then Shays. After Shays came Enosh. So he was Adam's grandson. Right? So Adam sinned, and his son Cain sinned, and his grandson Enosh sinned. You know, it kept on going. Um, so it kept on pushing God from one, from one uh, heaven to another one. Um, later on, account of the sin of Cain and then of Enosh, the Shekhinah withdrew even further from this world. Rising from the nearest heaven to the second and then to the third. Later yet, the sins of the generation of the deluge. What's that? The mabul, The flood. Very good. Caused it to recede from the third heaven to the fourth and so on. Right, there was another sin. There was the sin of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the Tower of Babel. Right? The, the generation. Then there was the sin of... Um, of uh, what's it called? Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? In total... There were seven sins, seven major sins, I say seven global or national or huge sins that caused God to jump from one heaven to another. What does that mean? He jumped from one heaven to the next. But what? It's less revealing. Uh, exactly. He was less apparent, less accessible, less here. Right? The Sfirot was... Creating... No, that's not, no, it's not Sfirot. Forget about Sfirot right now. Sfirot is a different story. This whole concept of heavens, it's all within the context of our created of, of our world. So we have our physical space, planet Earth, so to speak, and then you have the different heavens, which basically means that God, God's uh, aw- the awareness of God became more dim. That's the idea. So what does it mean that God's brilliance was in this world in the beginning? Adam, when he came to be, when he, when he became conscious, right away he was aware of godliness. He was aware of God. That means that God is revealed. It's so interesting because he's so revealed, yet they sin. Yet they sin, and no? now, you know, we're like, like the kings in the room, are you going You know, sometimes people ask, really eating that apple was so bad, that's why we all have to die? The answer is, he didn't just eat the apple. He ate the apple when the king was in the room, right? He, right. he, he had such... Funny because he, so God gets farther and farther away... So you would think we would eat ten apples or seven apples. We did. We did. I mean, today, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, 
Hold on, forget about what we're doing jump to today. Hold on, we're not done yet. The story's not over yet. Hold on. <laughs> Let us continue. Then we'll get back to that thought. This progressive recession of the revealed divine presence is alluded to in the wording of the verse that relates that Adam and Eve heard the sound of God walking about in the garden. What's that supposed to mean? Rabbi Abba notes, the verse does not use the expected form of the, ver- of the verb mehalech, walking, but rather mithalech, which suggests that they heard the divine presence springing back in successive stages of withdrawal. Mithalech, like, like as if he was being pushed out. It's not that God was you know, just roaming about. He was being pushed in a certain direction. Um, but then let's get back to Marvin's problem here. One, one second. So by now it would be expected that we would be much worse. Oh, the Medrash proceeds to explain that after the sins of seven generations had caused the Divine Presence to withdraw seven spiritual levels from its initial manifestation in this world, which was in Genesis, so once we come to the end of the seven generations, then seven tzaddikim arose whose divine service drew the divine presence down once more into this world. All the way back to this world. All the way back to this world. So we had, right away in the beginning, oh, exactly, Sinai. That's what he's going to say here. Through the merit of Avraham, the Shekhinah was brought down from the seventh heaven to the sixth. And through the merit of Yitzchak, the Shekhinah was brought down from the sixth heaven to the fifth, and so on, until Moshe. It didn't start with Noah. It didn't start with Noah. No, Noah. Not Noah. Noah was a very unique individual, very interesting. How he, how he, I mean, he's, he's very much part of the story, but in this specific context of bringing awareness of God, I'll tell you why, because Noah did not share the knowledge with the people. It's not like he brought it to the world. He had it himself, but he didn't, he didn't bring it to the people. Avram was the first chance. one. Huh? Noah had a very good chance to... He did. Yeah. To they said we're going to beat up on Noah, but at the end of the day, no, he's our grandpa, okay. right? Yeah. So that's it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, what, Joseph? Levi. No, not Joseph. Levi. Kehaz. Amram. Moshe. That's the succession of the tzaddikim that brought, that brought the Shekhinah down to this world. Right, so um, um, through the merit of Avram, fine, through it, I saw until Moshe, the seventh of these tzaddikim, and all those who are seventh are cherished, drew the revelation of the Shekhinah down once again into this world below. All right, so that's what the Bossi Lagani is all about. When, when God says, I have come back to my garden, what's he saying? This is not the first time I'm here in this world. This is not the first time that my presence is here. This is not the first time that people are able to be so intimately, you know, connected to God in such a revealed way. I was here before. It was possible. All the way in the beginning. This is is my garden. This is my bridal chamber. This world, this is where I really am. I mean to mention the Sfirot and other spiritual worlds. God has many worlds where he could be. Just like... Everyone has many places where they could be. They could be in their kitchen. They could be in their, in, in their uh, exercise room, right? In, in their workout room. They could be in their office. They could be in their car. These are all my spaces. But are they your space where your essence is revealed, where you are most comfortable, most revealed? No. For that, you have the bridal chamber. For that, you have the most intimate space. 
right? So, God is saying that of all the spiritual worlds, this physical space, this physical world, this was my bridal chamber. And I was here originally. 2,000 years ago, I was here. But then I was banished. And I was banished further and further and further away. And then started a process of bringing me back to this world. And finally now, in the seventh generation from Avram Avinu, now I finally re-entered the world. How? Through the building of the tabernacle, through the building of the Mishkan. Because the giving of the Torah, even though that was the beginning of the relationship between God and the Jewish people, and even though there was a tremendous revelation at Sinai, but it was, it was temporary. It was a revelation, and then it was gone. That was it. Their 40 days later, they were able to sin with the golden calf, right? So, God fixed the situation. They said, okay, you're going to build for me a space. You're going to build for me a tabernacle, a mishkan, where I can be there permanently. Every day, all throughout the day and night, I'm going to be there. After the golden calf, he didn't leave it. He didn't leave the world. No, whatever. The golden calf had a tremendous impact on a lot of things. For example, the the Medrash tells us, the Talmud says, that after the giving of the Torah, uh, death technically was banished from the world, or definitely from the Jewish people. After the sin of the golden calf, it came back. Chazra Zuha Muslim. Like, you know, they're... The, the issue that, uh, that as a result of that issue, death needs to be in this world, came back, right? But that did not stop God from continuing his plan of being revealed in this world through the Mishkan, through the tabernacle, and giving us the chance, the ability, and the mandate to bring God to every space in this world. As we're going to see, that this whole idea of the tabernacle, it's not meant to, it, it's, not exclu- it's not meant to be exclusively in the physical edifice of the tabernacle. It actually means that it's supposed to be within every one of us. We'll see, it's, it's, we're going to get to that, that topic, that idea. So is that why, because after the second chapter, when he was in the temple, right? his presence, like, like you're just saying. It's, it's within us, right? Like a shul, whatever. Exactly. The point is, the point is that from the time that Moses, uh, how do you say, welcomed God into the tabernacle, Right? From the time that the Jewish people built the tabernacle, at that point, God's presence in this world is here to stay. There are many different manifestations, but God is never banished from the world. It's here to stay. There's, there's a process of bringing this revelation to every corner of the world. One of, one of the interesting um, ideas that are discussed at length in Chassidus I mean, we've, we've spoken about this idea. What does emes, I'm oh, sorry, what does truth mean? What does truth mean? So, in a world of, of falsehood, what do, what do they say? Truth means, everyone has their own truth, right? In every context, in every place, and everything it has its own truth. That's not true. The Hebrew word for truth is emet, right? Emes. Three letters. Aleph, Mem, Taf. The first letter of the alphabet, the last letter of the alphabet, and the middle letter of the alphabet. Truth is something that is consistent and is everywhere all the time. That's truth. That's the definition of truth. If it's not, if there's one area where it does not, uh, where where it, where it's not present, where it's not there, then it's not truth. Then it's not. So when we talk about God in His bridal chamber. And what we're referring to when we talk about his bridal chamber is this entire world. That means that every single 
place of this world must be permeated with the revelation of God. Literally every single place in this world. Not just every place. Everything in this world has to be permeated with this truth. Maybe it is, but we don't see it. <laughs> That's the whole idea. It is, but we have to reveal it. We have to see it. We have to show it. So that uh, from the time that God came into the Mishkan until today, until Mashiach will come, that's what our job is. To reveal these things, to reveal this idea everywhere in this world. The definition of Mashiach is that this revelation in the bridal, uh, in, in my bridal area, right, should be apparent everywhere in this world. And until that happens, we're not done. So when Meisha welcomed God into the Mishkan, he wasn't finished. It was the beginning of a whole new process. Until Moshe, it was impossible to reveal God anywhere in this world. Because God had been banished from the world. And it took a, a, a process of seven generations, of seven great tzaddikim, to welcome him back. Now that he's been welcomed back, now we could start the work of doing mitzvahs, of learning Torah, of bringing God to every single place in this world. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's, let's go back inside. Um, <clears throat> divinity was primarily revealed in the Beis HaMikdash as it is written and they shall make me a sanctuary and I shall dwell within them this is a verse in Parshat Truma before God gives us all the instructions of how to build the tabernacle he says make me a sanctuary and I shall dwell within them significantly so, so when you just read that verse, what does that mean? That if we're going to build a tabernacle, God will dwell in our camp, right, within us. But uh, our sages take it a bit deeper. Significantly, the last word, the last Hebrew word of the verse is not as expected, betocho, which means within it, within the tabernacle. But it, it, rather, the word is betocham, which means within them. For God craves a dwelling place within each individual Jew. So what God was saying was like this. You're going to build the tabernacle. That tabernacle is going to be a template of how I can dwell within you. Every specific individual Jew. Not just in this big beautiful place that you're going to build for me, but that's going to be translated into every single person. This concept can grant us insight into the verse, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell forever upon it. Now the word lo'ad here is translated forever, recalls the word ad in the phrase, he who dwells forever, exalted and holy is his name, which is referring, referring to God. So what's the idea here? Our verse may thus be understood as follows. The righteous will inherit the land, which is an allusion to Gan Eden. Why? Because they cause him who dwells forever, exalted and holy is his name, to dwell and be revealed in this physical world below. It's a, it's a play on a bunch of words in the, in the verse, but what it's essentially saying is like this. What is the goal of Jews here in this world? To bring God to every place in this world. How do, we, how do we bring God to every place in this world? How do you do that?
spreading the word. Spreading the word. How do you, how do you spread that? Like, what, what is the idea? You have to go and take out uh, uh, full page ads in the New York Times. I want to be like, you know, I yeah, you put your filling on Or when you take a cup of coffee and you make a blessing, Shakol Niyabid Varo, bringing God into this space, into this area, right? So, so in other words, this gives an entire new, new. Um, I want to say a dimension. It gives us a whole new prism from which to view Judaism in general. Judaism is not just about behaving good so I don't get in trouble. It's not just a set of rules that shouldn't land you up in jail. It's it's a how do you say, it's a it's a mission. We have a mission to accomplish here. When soldiers go out to war and they have a whole bunch of rules, right? The reason why they follow those rules is not so that they shouldn't be court-martialed. The reason they're following the rules is because they're aiming towards victory. Every time that they go ahead and they they, they listen to their instructions and they go and they take over one hill and they go and do this, go and do that, whatever it is, or they dig a foxhole, whatever it might be. They're doing it towards a certain goal, which is victory. They're not doing it in order that they should, you know, be able to be discharged with full benefits. You know what I'm that, that, that's not the goal of a soldier. The goal of a soldier following the rules is so that they should attain, they should achieve victory. That's what Judaism is all about. The reason we make a blessing on a cup of coffee is not so that God should, be, should not be angry with us for stealing his coffee. Right? We're making a blessing so that we should be able to reveal in this coffee that there's a creator of the coffee. We should be able to reveal in this room. That's where we're sitting here in this room. We're learning Torah. So now this room becomes a divine space. God is comfortable here. And when you're on an airplane, you're flying, and you take out a Torah book, and you're learning Torah, and the guy next to you says, oh, is that Torah? And they realize that instead of just sitting and reading some nonsense, you're reading God's word, you just... Transform the entire airplane into a space for God. And so on and so forth. Right? So this is and so so this would take the Bossi Lagani, the statement that God makes, I've come to my bridal garden, my, my bridal chamber, and this is taking it to the next step. That it shouldn't be exclusively in a tabernacle that was dedicated to God, or in a holy temple, or in a shul. But in every single one of us, we become a walking temple, a walking tabernacle. We become, essentially, God's bridal chamber and the, the, the vehicle through which everything in this world becomes God's revealed bridal chamber. With this in mind, yeah, we're continuing here. We're middle of the page. With this in mind, namely the revelation of the divine presence in the sanctuary, and more particularly... The revelation of the divine dimension within himself, which each individual secures through the construction of his personal sanctuary, we can better understand the interpretation of the verse, I have come into my garden, as I have come into my bridal chamber. The Shekhinah here speaks of its return to the original location of its essential abode in the midst of the nether beings. When Adam was created and Adam came, you know, came to consciousness, there was no tabernacle, there was no temple. He didn't have a shul. Maybe if he would have had a shul, he would have been better off, right? No. Adam was the temple. God's revelation was within Adam. 
And by the way, he had a tremendous accomplishment before he sinned. Adam had the opportunity to crown himself as God, as, as God of the universe. When he came to consciousness and he stood up, all of creation came to Adam and said, you're the king. Because they recognized his superiority. They recognized his wisdom. They all wanted to bow to Adam. So Adam, you could have said, yeah, yeah, it's me. But no, he said, no, no, no. no. God is the king of the world. And it's, it's actually in the Tehillim, in, the, in, in one of the chapters that we say every Friday night, he said, Let us come and prostrate ourselves before God. This was a big deal. And Adam caused that God's presence should be revealed in his bridal chamber in the entire world, all of creation, acknowledge God. Unfortunately, a little while later, he sinned, right? But originally... Where was God? In every person's mind. Adam and Eve. Every animal. Every conscious being had the, the awareness of God. So when we say that the Shekhinah came into the tabernacle, it's not just about some revelation in some building, in some place that we build. It means in me and in you, in every one of us. Why is this? This is connected to the whole purpose of creation. So as he continues, now the ultimate purpose for the creation of the spiritual and physical worlds was that God desired to have a dwelling place in the lower worlds. You can ask a very simple question. Once Adam sinned, right, and banished God from this world, you know, if you're kicked out of a club, don't come back. They don't want you there, right? Go find a different club, right? If you can't find any other golf club that would take you in, so give up golfing, go into tennis. But what, why do you want to come back to that club where they kicked you out? You can ask the same question about God, right? You're in this world, you tried it out, didn't work, okay, go find, go find another world, another place, another area that would be more welcoming to God. You cannot leave, that's his own world. If you leave there, there will be nothing left. Nothing left of what? Of the world or of God? The world. Okay, so destroy the world. No, but it's like your child. Why can't you give up your child? What's the what's the idea? Because it's yours, huh? Over here, it's not just because it's God's creation. This was the whole purpose of creation. God has many worlds. He's got Atsilus, Bria, Yetzira, Asiya. He's got a lot of you know amazing worlds. There's a whole, there's a whole huge, I say, smorgasbord of worlds that God could choose to live in. But you know why He created Atzilus, and why He created Bria, and why He created Atzir? Why did He create all this world? You know why He did it? In order to create this world. Want Him to give up the whole reason why He has worlds in the first place? See, He was kicked out. But, but that, that's the crown jewel of the whole thing. The reason he created this whole succession of spiritual worlds was in order that he should have a physical world in which he can have an abode, in which he could dwell. What? The other world, will it will be able to exist without his world? Sure, why not? He, he kind of give them some kind of energy. Huh? They, you're talking about energy, but they could exist without us. <clears throat> They could technically exist without us. 
The reason they don't is because their whole purpose is us. Right? But logically speaking, well, we aren't necessary. But if the premise is God wants to have a physical world in which He should be revealed, then yeah, so then the whole thing is dependent on us. God can't give us up. So we have a greater fullness of a person than Jacob. The greater the Yitzhak. Yes. I mean, I'm saying that because I'm looking at this whole thing. Adam is the essence of God. I mean, it's all in him. And then, yeah, he did great things, but then he messed up. Right. And how could he do it? Because he had this. Had a tremendous challenge, yeah. Yeah, this great inclination, which matches his greatness. Mm-hmm. And so God knows that. So he's kicked out, but he realizes that Adam is challenged and that we're all going to be challenged. Right. And that's why God can't. Why? Because this is the whole reason why he's here. The reason, you know, is this whole reason why he created the worlds, all the worlds? He wanted to have not just a physical world. He wanted to have a physical world with people who are challenged, and they choose God. So this is what he wanted, right? This is the whole purpose of creation, right? He desired. We're on the second to last paragraph here. He desired that divinity be revealed even on the material plane below. How? By means by means of man's divine service of subordinating and transforming his physical nature. The biggest challenge to our serving God is our physical nature. Our physical nature is what motivates us to eat, so we want to indulge. It motivates us to sleep, and it motivates us to be lazy. It motivates us to be angry. It motivates us to all these different things. It all comes from our, our physical nature. And God, God gave it to us. God was the one that gave us all of these challenges. And he wants us to make a choice. He desired that the divine soul descend from its spiritual heights and become enclosed in a body with an animal soul. You're hearing Tanya here? You're hearing the... Which would conceal and obscure the divine soul's light. And despite all this, through the study of Torah and the observance of the commandments, the divine soul would refine and purify the body and the animal soul as well as its portion in the world, which means its environment. We're not just here to refine ourselves, we're meant also to refine our environment, not by going green, but by bringing Torah and mitzvahs and giving charity, etc. This, then, is the meaning of the above-quoted verse, and they shall make me a sanctuary, and I shall dwell within them, within each individual Jew. The individual brings about this here on page three. The individual brings about this revelation of the divine presence within his personal sanctuary through his divine service of sifting and refining materiality by subordinating and transforming his physical nature. So the, a very simple, a very simple example. A person makes money. So all of a sudden you have a lot of ideas what I want to do with the money. But when you specifically I say, sift through the fact that you have all that money and you realize, one second, the reason I have that money is in order to do positive things, good things. And they give to charity. You, you, do, you do things in a way that bring more positivity to the world. So now you have just elevated the money. You have subordinated your desire, your, I say, your inclination. Everyone wants to go. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, um, 
you have basically transformed your your initial how do you say your your initial reaction your knee-jerk reaction to having money is to take care of yourself and here you think above and beyond and you transcend yourself you think about others you think about god so that that, that makes a tremendous difference in this world All right, I I think we'll stop here.